0: never fails to get me. Probably a thousand times I've sung it, and even t- every time I sing it now, it means something even more. This morning's text is written to those of us who sing that song. It is a text from, I think, probably, if I had to, for some reason, if I was forced to narrow it down to one chapter in the Gospels that I would rest on, it would be this one. Chapter 15 from the Gospel of Luke in which there is a preamble and then three parables. The parable of the shepherd who searches for the lost sheep, the parable of the woman who searches for the lost coin, and the parable of the father who searches and waits for his lost son or sons to come home. Those three parables, I think, better than any, sum up the whole power and meaning of the gospel. May that power and meaning make itself known to us today as we hear this word coming from the fifth chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 10. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Seeing that, he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Well, of course, none of them would. Which one of you wouldn't, he says, but none of them would. None of us would. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home... He calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who think they need no repentance. And then the parable of the lost coin. If the first one is a parable about animate objects being lost as if in some Since it was the sheep's fault for getting lost, Jesus makes sure that we see that maybe if it's inanimate and not responsible and lost too, that it's even more radically about God's grace. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over God, of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. You can just hear them. They have just gotten out of church and made their way as fast as they could for the buffet line at the country club. They're standing there, ready to receive a big old piece of fried chicken, as we say in the South, and a big old slab of roast beef au jus that they could dip on top of their mashed potatoes. She looks at him and says loud enough for him to hear, but not for the rest standing in line, Jim. Look over at that table. You see who's here? I heard they just joined. I can't believe that they let that family join this club. I mean, look at their son. He has tattoos all over him, spiked hair, and it's even lime green. What is the world coming to? Mm, mm, mm. In Jesus' time, there was no more controlled and regulated event than dinner, who you ate with and what you ate. The rules of purity were clearly spelled out in Leviticus about table manners, about how you had to wash and who you could sit with and where you could sit and what you could eat. Each regulation clearly spelled out to determine two things, what was pure, not only the food, but the people you eat with, and who had power. For those who had power, they got the seat at the table. First, they were men, and secondly, they were men of means. The women waited on them, as did the servants. Purity and power were the most important drivers at every meal. Eating together is a good thing. We at Riverside know I've never been in a church that ate more together than this one. It is fellowship. It is, in fact, communion. Literally, I mean it. It is communion table fellowship. Thank goodness we do not, at least as far as I know, restrict our tables. Well, we do so sort of Unconsciously, when we choose to sit with the same people, not choosing with those who look like strangers, but everyone's invited. Table manners go to the deepest part of how we understand who we are and whose we are. Some of you are friends of Alton Yates, the black member of this community who was, I think, the first black astronaut When he was through with his deployment in Texas, he began driving back through the South to get to Jacksonville, and through some of the states there, he saw giant billboards, KKK billboards, with depictions of lynchings on them. And he got stopped a couple of times on his way, treated completely like he was, as you would Guess an outsider. He resolved on that trip that when he got back to Jacksonville, he was going to do everything he could to help integrate peacefully his community of Jacksonville. And it was Alton Yates who was one of the persons who in 1960 decided to sit down at the Woolworth counter that was not integrated at the time to begin that process that led to a week later what became known as Axe Handle Sunday in which Alton Yates ended up in the hospital with a concussion. Jesus understood the power of eating together so much that he told a story about God's kingdom being like a wedding banquet where everyone was invited, everyone was invited and had a name place sitting at the table and it was up to you to come or not. And he told the story of the prodigal son having a party when he got back, this giant mass party, and everyone was invited, yet it was up to the elder son to come or not. And he told story after story after story about eating together, for that for Jesus was the metaphor of the kingdom of God, that we are all gathered together in one place, nobody missing, sharing, and rejoicing in this amazing moment. Even the riffraff. Even the tax collectors. The worst of the worst. Even the sinners. Barbara Brown Taylor said, if I were putting together a sinner's table at the Waffle House, I might include an abortion doctor, a child molester, an arms dealer, a garbage collector, a young man with AIDS, "'a Laotian chicken plucker, a teenage crack addict, "'and an unmarried woman on welfare "'with five children by three different fathers. "'Did I miss anyone?' she says. "'Oh, don't forget to put Jesus at the head of the table, "'asking the young man to hand him a roll, please, "'and offering the doctor a second cup of coffee "'before he goes back to work.' "'She goes on, "'If that offends you a little, "'then you are almost ready for what happens next.' The local ministerial association comes into the Waffle House and sits down at the large table set aside for them every week across from that table of sinners. The religious authorities all have good teeth, and there is no dirt under their fingernails. When their waffles come, they hold hands to pray. They are all perfectly nice people, but they can hardly take a bite for staring at the strange crowd across the room sitting with Jesus All those poor people and Jesus right there at the head. Doesn't he know that we are best known by the company we keep? They grumbled, those religious leaders, they grumbled that Jesus was lying down with dogs and getting fleas. This is such a radical reality, such a complete paradigm shift for us, that Jesus knew no explanation could work. No logical or rational conversation can bring us to a realization of what this means. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone you didn't agree with politically? Uh, Of course. And you, you use rational explanation for why you believe that what your side thinks is right with facts and information. Facts and information don't matter a bit. Never let a fact get in the way of your belief. Rational conversation doesn't change anyone. It is an emotional issue. Jesus knew that, which is why he used parables. A parable is this story that draws you in, and you're listening to it, and you're in it, and all of a sudden, Wham! The punchline comes and hits you in the solar plexus, and the next thing you know, you are exhaling all of what you used to think was true and inhaling something brand new. It is a complete change of viewpoint, like this first one. A shepherd discovers in the evening, as he brings his sheep together in a flock, that there is one missing instead of a hundred. 99. Where are they? The text is clear. They're in the middle of the wilderness. They're not in a barn. They're not in a fenced yard. They're not protected at all. They're in the middle of a wilderness. Lions and tigers and bears kind of wilderness. Didn't matter. The shepherd leaves them all huddled there, unprotected, to go out and look for the one sheep who was lost. Hardly a good source of resources, we would think. Didn't matter. And he searched for him all night long until he finally found him bleeding, caught in some thicket. Does that sound familiar? And he picks him up and throws him on his shoulders... I don't think he gently laid him. I don't think he gently picked him up. I think he was so excited to see him he just grabbed him in a bear hug and flung him on top of his back and began to make his way back home. 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 And isn't that the point? And when he got there voila. The neighbors showed up and they danced like it was 1999. These are the parables that we find in the 15th chapter of Luke they're joy parables they're party parables they're lost and found parables and this is the point that Jesus is making if we think that we're not lost we are more lost than ever In fact, there might just be two kinds of people in the world those who are lost and know it, and those who are lost and can't admit it. And he's writing the parables to those of us who are lost and cannot, in all good religious conscience, admit it. We cannot let ourselves sit at the sinner's table at the Waffle House because we've already got our chair drawn up at the good religious folks' table instead. I pulled my files and discovered that I have preached from the 15th chapter of Luke over 25 times in almost 30 years of preaching. It left me wondering why. And I suspect the reason is twofold. The first is that deep down, one of those grumbling, judgmental religious people complaining about who Jesus spends his time with happens to be me. Personally, my nose gets out of joint when I think it's possible that Jesus welcomes the Koch brothers, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and even the Clintons. I think it's called projection. I covered them all, in case you're keeping score. I think it's projection when I simply project my own dark shadow side unto all these other people that I just don't like. And I'm deceiving myself that I'm better than they are, and I know better than they do, and i got to tell you, it's not just me, is it? That's part of it. The second part of it, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's just as important, is that part of me that feels more often than I can admit that I am as lost as that sheep in this story. Completely clueless much of the time. And the good news is, of course, that Jesus and God's kingdom is filled up with people like us. Us who are righteous and lost. can try and use words all day long to describe what it's like to experience being lost like that and then being found by the grace of God. We've heard them all. I was a no good, drunk in the gutter, a cheat, a scoundrel. Then something came to me and lifted me up with hope and I was able to crawl my way to an AA meeting. Something like the light Came to me, and I began to see that there was some way home. And whether it's alcohol or narcotics or infidelity or resentment or anger or depression or some family disfun- dysfunction or greed or anxiety or the names are legion, I suspect most of us have had an experience of what it means to be lost. Oftentimes we're just lost in our brains, lost in our good minds that try to make us think that we know something when we really deep down don't. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a lost person like me. And my only argument with it is that not that I once was lost and now I'm found. It is that I am often lost and often found. I'm often blind and often brought to see. And the best word for it when that happens is unmitigated joy. So full of the kingdom of God and the love of God and joy that me, you, so seemingly lost and righteous at the same time, are invited to be a part of this unbelievable feast that is even now before us. Sometimes I worry that the good church people of our world have lost their way. We have turned church into a place you can belong to if you believe certain things or if you behave in certain fashion and those people who don't agree with us they're lost and those people who don't behave the way we think they should lost they can go to another potluck supper somewhere but not this one no wonder all those people out there in five points that we pass all the time look at riverside church as if it is the standing fortress Look at it like that. Go out for a block and look back. We look like this massive fortress that has been built to keep the good people in and the not-so-good people out. They don't know any better that we're not any better than they do. They don't know that we're just as lost as they are. They see us coming into church, basically upper-middle class, basically 99% of us, Caucasian, basically educated, they see us coming in, and we look like we're the foundest found you can imagine. And so they see that over and over again, and they think, you know what? My life's not so perfect as theirs. I'm feeling kind of lost. Why would I ever want to go there? And if they only knew, behind the facade of our righteousness and good-lookingness, we're just as lost. Maybe that's what the incarnation of Jesus Christ is all about, and this is going to be a testy one for you. The Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, came into our lives as a shepherd, goes into the place where the sheep has been lost, willing to be lost with us. For indeed, Jesus was lost at one point in the Garden of Gethsemane, inasmuch as lost means separated from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what we are given in that is this unbelievable love that God and Jesus Christ will go to whatever means it takes, even if it means Christ's own lostness, to let us know that we are welcome back. You know when we say the Apostles' Creed, I know some of you say we don't say it enough, but when we say Jesus descended into hell, we are saying that there is no place that Jesus does not go, that is not beyond how far lost we are. And what we discover, of course, in the end is that we were never ultimately lost at all. For the kingdom is God's, and we are part of it. And that God never loses anything. And that all things in God's will and mind is to be restored back into unity. Not a fraction. Not 99 one-hundredths. One hundred one-hundredths complete, unified reconciliation. This is God's economy. Because in God's kingdom, everyone and everything will eventually, somehow, by grace, be sitting down at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. It just takes us getting found enough and lost enough to finally get the message. So now that I think about it, maybe I need to preach this chapter a lot more.